Section 23 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18. The Decemvirs and the Laws of the Twelve Tables, 451 to 442 B.C. By the establishment of the Office of Tribunes in 493 B.C., the Plebeian Assembly of Tribes acquired the rank and weight of a National Assembly, inasmuch as the officers elected by it were invested with public authority and were recognized and submitted to by the patricians no less than the plebeians. It seems that in consequence of the extended rights thus gained by the Comitia of Tribes, the patricians claimed to have votes in them. If they had succeeded in this claim, the tribunes would have ceased to be magistrates of the plebs alone. They would have become what the consuls were, namely, magistrates not of a class or fraction of the Roman people, but of the whole community, patricians would have become eligible to the office, and the great contrast between patricians and plebeians would have gradually disappeared. Perhaps this would have been salutary in the end, but the plebeians vehemently opposed the admission of patricians into their own comitia. They would not allow their patrons, the tribunes, to be elected by anybody but themselves, and they insisted upon the rigid exclusion of patricians from the plebeian assembly. A law was passed in 471 B.C. called after its author, Volero Poblilius, the Poblilian Law, to secure the election of the plebeian tribunes exclusively to the plebs. This law passed only 22 years after the secession did not introduce a new principle, but was only declaratory of an established right. By it, moreover, according to some writers, the number of tribunes was raised from two to five. The tribunes of the people did not long confine themselves to the duties for which they were primarily elected. Not satisfied with protecting plebeians from unjust treatment of patrician magistrates, they aimed at raising the inferior citizens to an equality with the ruling class in all private and public rights. The times were past when the patricians could claim to represent the people of Rome and to wield exclusively all political power. It had become clear on the occasion of the secession that the patricians were helpless without the plebeians. The frequent wars could not be carried on without the men who by that time undoubtedly formed the greater part of the army. The privileges of birth, of presumed sanctity, of exclusive political and legal experience, and above all of prescriptive possession of power, could not outweigh the claim which the plebeians now put forth as the great bulk of the people, and especially of the fighting men. The first object of the plebeians, however, was not a share of political power, but a more effective legal protection than even the new office of tribunes had secured for them. They asked for two things. First, the removal of all inequalities between themselves and the patricians as far as private rights were concerned, and secondly, a codification of the laws thus reformed. This was the object of an agitation set on foot by Terentilius Arsa, a tribune of the people, in 462 BC. The motion of Terentilius met with a violent opposition from those conservative politicians who felt and acted as if human institutions ought to be unchangeable, like the laws of nature. The contest lasted for ten years. The tribunes had as yet no seats in the Senate, and were therefore unable to advocate their projected reform in that assembly. 
they could only harangue their fellow plebeians in public meetings called cantiones, but these cantiones had not, like the comitia, the power of passing laws. The agitation of the tribunes, therefore, resembled that which is exercised in modern times by the press or by public meetings. To obtain the force of law like an act of parliament, the proposals of the tribunes had to be sanctioned by a majority of the senators, and this was exceedingly difficult to effect at a time when the Senate consisted as yet entirely of patricians, and did not admit the tribunes of the plebs to a seat or a vote. There would have been no prospect of final success if the senators had to a man resisted the reform. But fortunately for Rome, the ruling class did not consist exclusively of men opposed to all progress. Like the English nobility, it seems to have included at all times a number of men enlightened enough to see that reforms are sometimes demanded by the necessities of national life, if not by generosity or justice. Such were the Valerii, Spurius Cassius, Marcus Manlius, and above all, the members of the Claudian family, men of a haughty and overbearing spirit, yet ready to encounter the hostility of the ruling class for the benefit of the greater number and of the state. These men had the wisdom to see that Rome had no chance of making head against her numerous enemies all around if she was paralyzed by discord and civil strife at home. They counseled conciliation, which had been found effective on the occasion of the secession thirty years before, and it was owing to their exertions, no doubt, that several concessions were made to the plebeians, such as the increase of the number of tribunes from five to ten, the limitation of the fines which magistrates should be allowed to inflict, and a change in the tenure of land on the Aventine Hill in favor of the plebs, the law of Achilles de Aventino Publicando, the exact nature of which we are unfortunately unable to understand. Yet these concessions, if they were intended to make the plebeians forego the desire of the reform of Terentilius, proved of no effect. Year after year the demand for law reform was repeated, and at last, after a struggle protracted through ten years, the government, that is the Senate, in the name of the patrician body, consented. It was agreed that the existing forms of government should be suspended, that in the place of the patrician consuls and the plebeian tribunes, ten men, decemvirs, should be elected indiscriminately from the two orders of citizens, empowered to carry on the regular government, and at the same time, to reform the existing law, and to equalize the private rights of plebeians and patricians. Finally, in order to prevent any ambiguity and to put an end to the uncertainty inseparable from unwritten laws, it was resolved that the laws should be written down and made known to the public. The laws of the Twelve Tables, drawn up in consequence of this resolution, continued in force for many ages, and even in Cicero's time formed part of the elementary school teaching of Roman boys. Unfortunately, only fragments of them have come down to us. Yet these fragments are of invaluable service in the study of Roman life and manners. The documentary history of Rome may be said to begin with these laws. The time of legendary stories and of mere tradition is past. Nevertheless, when we read the account given by Livy of the transactions which led to the legislation of the Decemvirs, 
and especially of those which caused their overthrow, we feel the greatest disappointment and irritation, for instead of a plain unvarnished tale we find statements so contradictory, unintelligible, and incredible, that we cannot possibly accept them as they are, although we have not sufficient external evidence to sift and to correct them. We can only hope to test them by general arguments, and by applying to them the laws of historical probability, availing ourselves at the same time of some features of the story which we have a right to look upon as remnants of a trustworthy tradition. Before the Decemvirs entered on their office it was determined, as Livy informs us, to send an embassy to Athens for the purpose of studying the celebrated laws of Solon, that the Roman legislators might be enabled to form their laws after that great model. The names of the three ambassadors are given by Livy, as well as that of a Greek philosopher who accompanied them and assisted them in their task. Upon their return, they made their report, and the services of the Greek philosopher were rated so high that a statue was erected in his honor in the Roman Forum. In spite of the apparent evidence which may seem to be contained in the erection of this statue, we can have no hesitation in declaring the whole story of the Greek embassy of fiction for the following reasons. No nation of antiquity ever dreamt of forming its civil law after a foreign model. Least of all would the Romans have done so, who, if they were original in anything, were original in their system of civil law and distinguished by their contempt for foreign institutions. If this were not so, we should be able to discover some such resemblance between the Salonian and Roman laws as would be evidence of the derivation of the latter from the former. No such resemblance exists. Nor is it possible to conceive that Roman ambassadors could have gone to Athens to study the laws of Solon, for at the time of the Decemvirs these laws were no longer in force, but had been supplanted by the democratic institutions of Cleisthenes. Apart from the reasons just urged, the Romans at the period of the Decemvirs in the middle of the 5th century before Christ if they had ever heard the name of Solon or of Athens, were probably very far from such a general acquaintance with Greece as is implied by a resolution to take Greek models for their national legislation. We cannot do better than sum up these doubts in the words of Gibbon. From a motive of national pride, both Livy and Dionysius are willing to believe that the deputies of Rome visited Athens under the wise and splendid administration of Pericles, and the laws of Solon were transfused into the Twelve Tables. If such an embassy had indeed been received from the barbarians of Hesperia, the Roman name would have been familiar to the Greeks before the reign of Alexander, and the faintest evidence would have been explored and celebrated by the curiosity of succeeding times. But the Athenian monuments are silent, nor will it seem credible that the patricians should undertake a long and perilous navigation to copy the purest model of a democracy. In the comparison of the tables of Solon with those of the Decemvirs, some casual resemblance may be found, some rules which nature and reason have revealed to every society. But in all the great lines of public and private jurisprudence, the legislators of Rome and Athens appear to be strangers or adverse to each other. Having disposed of the story of the Athenian embassy, we proceed to examine the narrative of the Decemviral legislation. In 451 BC, the elections of Decemvirs took place and resulted in the return of ten patricians. 
the plebeians being left without their tribunes had to submit to this violation of the recent agreement which stipulated for a mixed commission however the patrician decemvirs discharged their duties honestly and almost completed their task so that before the end of the year ten tables of the laws were drawn up and approved by the people as some laws were still wanting to complete the code it was resolved that decemvirs should again be elected for the following year then appius claudius who had been the leading man in the first year's commission and who was looked upon as the champion of the aristocratic party suddenly assumed it is said the character of a friend of the people and secured not only his own re-election but also the election of several plebeians upon the new commission however when he and his colleagues were installed in office they showed that they were the friends neither of the patricians nor of the plebeians for they treated both with equal violence they appeared in public preceded by a body of one hundred and twenty lictors and these lictors carried not only the rods but also the axes the emblems of dictatorial power all freedom was suppressed no class of citizens was spared not only were the plebeians trampled underfoot but the most eminent of the patricians were put to death or driven into banishment rome was like a city taken by storm and sacked by a victorious enemy thus the year of the second decemvirate passed by and yet the two tables which were wanted to complete the legislation were not submitted to the people for approbation the decemvirs refused to lay down their office protesting that they would first pass the laws which they were appointed to draw up the senate in vain urged them to retire the people became discontented the army mutinous yet the decemvirs clung to their office thus violating the fundamental law of the republic which required every magistrate to resign at the expiration of the period for which he was elected the general disaffection was brought to a crisis by an outrage committed on female chastity by appius claudius himself in the blindness of his passion for a beautiful girl the daughter of virginius a brave plebeian centurion he instigated one of his clients to claim her as his slave under the pretext that she was the daughter of a slave woman belonging to him the girl was brought before the judgment seat of appius and he contrary to a clear provision of the law sanctioned by himself decided that pending the investigation she should be considered not as a free woman but as a slave and handed over to the keeping of the claimant with difficulty the friends of virginia obtained a respite for her until her father should appear to produce the evidence in favour of his daughter's legitimate birth on the following day the case was proceeded with and when virginius saw that all his arguments and entreaties were of no avail to save his child from shame he stabbed her to death with his own hand this deed was the signal for a general insurrection the people a second time in arms seceded to the sacred mount threatening to abandon rome and to form a separate community the senate and the patricians left behind in rome at last compelled the decemvirs to resign and then restored the consular government thus they induced the commons to return after the reenactment of the sacred laws and the re-establishment of the tribuneship the decemvirs were punished with exile appius claudius reserved in prison for a severer punishment put an end to his own life thus runs the wonderful story of the downfall of the decemvirs 
it is hardly necessary to say that it cannot be true. The sudden change in the character of Appius Claudius, however strange, is perhaps possible. But what shall we think of the policy ascribed to the Decemvirs, which was hostile to both parties in the state at once, and seems to have rested on no support save that of 120 lictors? Surely the Roman plebs, united in common interests with the patricians, were not obliged to have recourse to such a violent measure as a secession in order to get rid of a few magistrates. That secession of the plebs, which is undoubtedly historical, can have been directed only against the patricians as a body, and its object must have been to protect plebeian rights endangered by the patricians. Now, as we are informed that after the secession, the office of tribunes was restored along with all the rights granted at the first secession, it seems a natural conclusion that the patricians had intended altogether to suppress the tribuneship, which had been only suspended during the decumvirate. Perhaps the patricians argued that now, after the decumviral legislation, the plebeian tribunes were no longer wanted, as the law itself would henceforth protect the plebeians but the plebeians insisted on the restoration of the sacred laws and they obtained it. A strong argument for the view we have taken of the second secession lies in the character of the laws contained in the last two tables. These laws are universally described as unjust to the plebeians, and they contain the prohibition of marriages between the two orders of citizens, a prohibition which was really a badge of servitude and a remnant of the old inequality of patricians and plebeians. It ought not to have been received into the new code, and could not have been sanctioned, as is alleged by men, who, like Appius Claudius and the second decumvirs, favoured the plebeians. On the other hand, the patricians who made peace with the plebeians did not repeal this obnoxious law. If they had been the real friends of the people, they could not have shown this in a more signal manner than by condemning a law so unpopular as they did not do so, we may infer that they intentionally upheld that law, and we are only going one step further if we surmised that they introduced it into the code in opposition to the policy of Appius Claudius. This conclusion is confirmed by a statement of Diodorus, who says that the last two tables of laws were added by the consuls Valerius and Horatius, who succeeded the decumvirs. The result of these considerations is that, in all probability, the second decumvirs were opposed to the policy of the extreme patrician party, that they intended to carry out that equalization of the laws which was the object of the Tarentillian rogation, that in this endeavor they were thwarted by the Senate, which compelled them to resign before the last two tables were sanctioned, that the Senate then embodied in the last two tables those old prohibitions of intermarriage between patricians and plebeians which were so offensive to the latter, and tried to restore the old consular government without the tribuneship of the people, that thereupon the plebeians had recourse to a secession, and did not return until the sacred laws and the tribuneship had been restored to them. All the stories of violence and cruelty ascribed to the decumvirs must be regarded as fictitious, and as invented from the same motive of blackening the character of popular leaders to which are to be ascribed similar charges brought against Spurius Cassius, Marcus Manlius, and even Gaius Gracchus. End of section 23